Good afternoon. Welcome to Screen Cleaning. I'm Jeff Simpson. And I'm Cole Wissinger. We're here each and every week on BYU Radio to give you the very best in entertainment. We don't like to focus on the negative things in the entertainment business, not the gossip, not the depressing stuff. There's always plenty of that. Right. But here on the show, we like to shine a spotlight on all that is good in entertainment. And one of the ways we do that is we start off by sharing some of the best Hollywood news from the past week. Which generally includes a few trailers and then some other things that we dig up over the course of the week. Right. And there are plenty of teaser trailers, lots of teaser trailers, and it seems like they're mostly for rated R films, Cole. You've got – and, you know, they're mostly for sequels as well. You've got the Bad Boys for Life trailer coming out. Will Smith, he's back. You know, I have not seen any of these films. I'm, I have not been meaning to see any of these films. And later on in the program, we're going to be talking about films that we are meaning, have been meaning to see. But I've never seen any of the Bad Boys films. Um, there is a film that is a spinoff of Suicide Squad that's coming out called Birds of Prey. Yes. And, you know, it's interesting because I'm starting to notice a trend here. Okay? Okay. So we have a movie. We have a movie coming out this weekend about a creepy clown. It's rated R. Uh, There's another movie. You may have heard of it. It's It. It. Yeah. Chapter two. Chapter two. Um, There is uh, another movie about a creepy clown coming out next month, also rated R, called Joker. Yes. And the the reason I'm I'm sensing a pattern here is because that is a DC movie. This trailer for Birds of Prey leads me to believe that this is going to be another R-rated DC movie. Now, why is that? Cole? Also kind of featuring I mean Harley Quinn is a, a sort of clown as well. Sure. Now, why is that? I mean, I th- I think that DC now that they've separated themselves from their official extended universe where they're trying to tie everything together and just make a lot of money, they're more going towards these director-driven stories where the creators get to decide what is included in their movies. They're allowing them a lot more freedom than they used to, and the kinds of directors they're finding are the kind that lean towards a little harder content. So they're not uh, as married to the idea of trying to duplicate the success of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They, I think they've kind of given up on that. Because you they, say? they tried and they failed. Right. It, it's not, not for lack of trying that they've given up on that little dream. So, okay, this is interesting that we have all these clown movies coming out, first of all. But um, if you were to have read the book It by... Stephen King. Which I've tried at least three or four times. And you failed. Got halfway through. You took the DC uh, approach and failed. Um, I listened to the entire book, and the book is very rated R. I've heard that some of the themes and uh, scenes from the book will not be appearing in the movie, which is probably a good thing. For the better. Right. Um, however, these movies are very rated R, very violent, gory, and full of of kids just with swearing a lot of potty mouths in mm-hmm. these movies, right? And now we get to see adults using their potty mouths. <laughs> it's gonna, it's probably gonna make a lot of money if you're if you're not familiar already. This is a movie that has it is the highest grossing R rated horror film. I think it's the closest 
any R-rated film has come to making a billion dollars. Oh, it's up there. There's never been a billion dollar R-rated film. Which goes to show you that, you know, these movies are not for the general public. So why are we talking about them? Well, because back in the 90s, yeah, there was a little miniseries that could and did. It was a huge hit. I mean, miniseries, it, it was a two-parter. Right. Is that really a miniseries? So it's interesting because this... The the movies that are out now, there's the first part and then there's chapter two, which is a little strange because if you've read the book, there are so many more than two chapters in it. Oh, my goodness. But uh, this was a big deal in the 90s for both you and me. You probably weren't old enough to see it when it came out, but when it came out on video, everybody rented it. And you had to – it was a, a two-video set. You had to get both VHS videos. Titanic was like that. Return of the King was like that. Right. So it was a big deal. And video stores were renting this thing out right and left. And just like this uh, series that's out today, the first part was dedicated to the kids, whereas the second part is dedicated to the grownups. Nicole, I'm, I'm curious to hear your take on this 90s two parter from the Stephen King adaptation. This is one of my favorite movies when you combine the two really? movies of all time. I mean, favorite in a way that I know it's not good quality, but it holds a special place in my heart, right? Okay. Sometimes when I list my favorite things, I've got a couple different ways of doing it. There's there's my actual favorites, and then there's those like formative kind of just important uh, nostalgic sort of things. And it falls in that latter category where it was just – so important into my developing of my love of horror movies that I have so much today. Watching the It from 2017, yeah, it's pretty R, but I was smiling more than I was scared or cringing or hmm. or cowering in my seat because I was seeing something that I loved so much as a kid come to me in a new and kind of better produced way. It certainly had a bigger budget, had better acting, and it was just kind of exciting to see this new thing. That's It's the way I talk about Pokemon Detective Pikachu that came out this year. It's the same way I talk about some of these new Harry Potter movies that come out that aren't necessarily based on the books. Not the greatest quality stuff in any of those things, but it's just really cool to see something that I loved as a kid show up again and not so bad that it ruins your childhood that so many people in my generation complain about. I I guess I see the good in all of those things. You know, just like you get two perspectives in this movie, the kid perspective and the adult perspective, I kind of have two different perspectives on it. Uh, from when I was a kid and and now. When you watch it, one of the things that this miniseries or this two-parter does really well is it has great casting, Cole. The ca- I mean, if you watch it as a kid and you'll recognize the adults, oh my goodness, there is John Ritter from Three's Company and all these great 90s movies like Problem Child. Oh, and there's, uh, what's his name from the uh, Night Court television show. So as a kid, you recognize the adults. Now watching it as an adult, you recognize some of the kid actors. Young Seth Green Seth is in Green this movie. Seth Green is in this. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So a lot of 90s gold in this movie in terms of the casting. But the biggest and greatest decision they made as far as the casting is concerned turned out to be the greatest decision they made overall in this two-parter 
was in the casting of Tim Curry as Pennywise the Clown. There you go. There's a lot that you could pick about at this movie. Pick at this movie about. Um, you know, a lot of the graphics have not held up over the years. See, the graphics didn't even hold up when I was watching it in the <laughs> 90s either. I remember right. as a very small child watching this movie well before I ought to have. Mm-hmm. Um, it got to the very, very end of the second part when they finally see what the monster really is. And spoiler alert, it's just a big dumb spider. <laughs> And I pointed out to my my mom and dad, hey, look, you can see like the little black lines and it's very green screened because I'd grown up watching the special edition Star Wars sure. where they go through on VHS before you could just skip the DVD menu or anything like that. Um, the VHS copies of the Star Wars extended editions explained all the little things that they changed between the originals and now and how yeah. they used all this new technology and they showed green screens. And so as a kid, I was extremely versed in what it meant when you had black lines and and the fading and the colors and the light tones don't quite match. And so I pointed that out to my parents and they groaned. Yeah. And my mom, who was also just cowering and and afraid in general, um, I kind of brought some levity into the situation as a cute little kid. Well, watching it now as an adult, not only do you recognize some of the things that Cole was recognizing in Pampers, um, but... Also, you start to recognize that, oh, yeah, the the part with the kids in it is way better than the part with the adults. Just not as interesting. But the one constant over all these years, Cole, has been Tim, Tim Curry. Curry. And one thing that I was not crazy about in the film that I loved in this miniseries was the part of Pennywise the Clown. Sure, you know, when you slap a bunch of CEI and creepy makeup on an actor to where the point where he's hardly recognizable, you could get some good scares. I'm talking about one of the Skarsgård brothers. There, Bill. There are like 10 of them. Yeah. Um, but the thing that I did not find scary about the new Pennywise the Clown is that in all the trailers, in all the scenes that you can see online without having to see the R-rated film – they, what they do basically is they just spell it out for you. Ooh, here's Pennywise the Clown. You should be scared of him. Tim Curry's portrayal of Pennywise the Clown was at first very inviting, very friendly, very charming, right? I mean, that's the, way the that... scary realism if you are into true crime like I am. Yeah. And you realize Stephen King got the idea of a creepy clown from real life, you know, evil dudes that would dress up like clowns to lure kids in. You got to right. be luring at first before you Right. Them and out. Tim Curry has that. And then from that point on in the movie, he is good at just acting like a clown, <laughs> but then also having these really dark turns. Whereas the Skarsgård version of it, he is just like constantly you should be scared of me. I'm going to do this weird thing with my eye. I'm going to talk in this creepy voice. No person in their right mind would go anywhere near this Hmm, creepy clown. That seems like a cool clown. Right. I wonder if he has balloons. No, not in a million years. You would run screaming for the hills. And a lot recently has been made about this new Joker and the laugh that he brings. And people online have been comparing the Jack Nicholson laugh to the Heath Ledger laugh to now we have a Joaquin Phoenix laugh. Oh, I've got to see that. You know what? I've got to look at that video. Tim Curry's laugh as Pennywise the clown (laughs) has them all beaten. Yeah, I wish we had a clip of that, but it's kind of like, whoop, whoop, whoop. 
that's that's basically I'll, all it is. I'll, sh- I'll shove it in and post. It'll okay. be just like that. Sounds great. So there's one more point I want to make about this miniseries, Cole, which will be a recurring theme throughout the show. We're going to be speaking to a reporter who wrote an article about Rotten Tomatoes. Cole is not a big fan of Rotten Tomatoes. I, like so many other people in this country and around the world, will rely too much to, about it. Well, no, you'll take a, just a quick glance at Rotten Tomatoes to see, well, you know, what are the critics saying about this? What are the audience members saying about this? You can put a little more stock in what the audience is saying about it because. You know, anyway, we're going to get into that here in just a minute. But the reason I bring it up now while we're talking about it is because if you look at the critic score, and there's not a huge sample size, I'll give you that, Cole, 59% on Rotten Tomatoes. Now, again, we'll talk about what those scores mean just here in a, in a, in a minute here. But the audience score is 63%. So it hasn't necessarily held up well over the years for either critics or audiences, but it is one that it is one that nice. is uh, very near and dear to Cole's heart, even after all these years. Wasn't that I right, say Cole? it's fresh. And uh, you can't go wrong with a little Tim Curry. And continuing on our little Rotten Tomatoes kick here, we want to bring back a segment that we've, we've had a couple times, um, and it is... I've been been meaning meaning to to watch watch that. (laughs) So, so far we've done some what many would consider classic films that you may be surprised to know that we just have not seen. Taking a couple more movies off of our big long list and sticking with our Rotten Tomatoes theme, we limited ourselves to movies we had not seen before that are 98 or above on Rotten Tomatoes. Right. These are the best of the best that have somehow slipped by in our movie-watching right. careers, but that we're finally getting around to watch because we're telling y'all on the radio that we're going to watch them, which gives some accountability and... Then we got to watch them. So, Cole, we reviewed this list of apparently the hundredest greatest, hundred greatest films of all time, according to Rotten Tomatoes. And this is where I start to see some of the holes that you've been that you've always brought up with Rotten Tomatoes, because you take a look at this list. Black Panther is the greatest movie of all time, according to Rotten Tomatoes. And it doesn't even have 100 percent. You can't really trust the lists that they put together. <laughs> but we just aside from that, we're looking down at set the bar at 98 and said you got to find something that's bigger than that that you've been meaning to watch genuinely and i found one that's an old timey thriller okay it's, there's getting a chill in the air summer is over and i'm preparing for my horror movie watch and experience in and, october and this could be an alternative to it chapter 2 exactly. that our audience could watch a, an old thriller by the name of The Third Man. I have still oh, not gotten yeah. around to watching. It's been on my list for a long time. This week, I'll be watching it. This was in the heyday of Orson Welles and Joseph Cotton, his frequent collaborator. This is a film that I have seen, Cole. And you'll have to tell me if you've seen the film that I've selected. This, is this like The Godfather, is another glaring omission in the, uh, in the films that I have seen. But another long omission. Yes. And it is called Lawrence of Arabia. British Beatlemania. This is the film that Steven Spielberg said that he, you know, inspired him to be a filmmaker. Lawrence of Arabia. Have you seen it, Cole? I have a long time ago. I'm not sure if I could even count it because it was when I was a kid and it was just on Turner Classic Movies. Okay. I'm surprised with my love of Turner Classic Movies and 
taping all of those old movies growing up. This one was one that I have never seen still. Well, I pledge to see it by next week's show, Cole, and give you a review. What I thought of this sprawling epic film that has stood the test of time for so many people. Will it stand the test of time for me? And will you rate it rotten or fresh Mm, in your own mind? It's a good question, Cole. Well, when we return on Screen Cleaning, we are going to be speaking with that reporter who did an article on Rotten Tomatoes. That's all up next here on Screen Cleaning. Last week on Screen Cleaning, Cole and I wrapped up the big summer movie box office report that we had going all summer. And a couple of the movies that you may have not seen on the list were films like Men in Black International and Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Part of the reason for that may have been the low scores they received on Rotten Tomatoes. Can they have an impact on their box office? Here to help us figure out this mystery is Ashley Rodriguez, who is a writer for Quartz, an online magazine that deals with entertainment. And she is here today to talk to us about Rotten Tomatoes and some of the the science behind what goes into putting together the Rotten Tomato scores. Ashley, welcome to Screen Cleaning. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you about this because uh, there was a, a time and place where the mighty thumbs up or thumbs down of Siskel and Ebert carried a lot of clout. People really relied on those movie ratings. And, you know, neither of those critics are, are with us anymore. But the the website Rotten Tomatoes is. And I'm curious. I'm curious to know a little bit more about Rotten Tomatoes. I, I use it frequently. But uh, if you could do us a favor, just tell us a little bit about what Rotten Tomatoes is and uh, why people go there to to decide whether or not they should be seeing a certain movie? Sure. Well, Rotten Tomatoes is a movie review site that aggregates reviews from different film critics. So each critic will assign a film either a rotten or a fresh tomato um, based on Rotten Tomatoes, what they call a tomato reader. And essentially the overall score is determined by the share of tomatoes that are assigned to each film. So if a movie has a 90% fresh rating, it means that 90% of critics gave the movie a fresh tomato and essentially thought it was a good movie. Now, that could be based on tens of reviews, or it could be based on hundreds of reviews, depending on how many submitted for each film. There's also a separate audience score, and that shows you what the share of just average viewers like you or me thought about the movie and whether they liked it. But when you glance at Rotten Tomatoes, what you generally see on the homepage is the critic score. That's what we're looking at, and that's what people are mostly concerned about. So for audiences, it's a really easy way to see whether a film is worth your time, right? You don't have to read through other reviews. But the trouble is that it eliminates some of the nuance that you get from film critics. What they generally do is they'll tell you, you know, a movie may be considered a bad film, It could have poor direction, um, the plot could be lacking, the performance could be underwhelming, but it could still be good fun to watch the theaters. And that's what you kind of lose a little bit when you look at these aggregation sites. Interesting. So, I mean, it it makes it so it's very black or white. You either like the movie or you don't like the movie when in actuality there's a lot more at play and maybe they – 
they don't really think it's a great movie, but it's fun, so they'll give it a you know a positive rating. What are some other factors that go into these ratings? Is there can we only rely on the fresh or rotten, or is there some other type of score or gauge on the website by which we can judge these movies? Well, there is a way where you can click in. So this is if you actually click on the title, when you go on the homepage, what you're seeing is the name of the movie and then you're seeing a score that's next to it. If you actually click into the title of the film, then there's a way that you can just see the scores of top critics. So these are critics that have maybe a little bit more clout. Um, they're here regularly. They, based on um, Rotten Tomatoes, they may maybe have a little bit better judgment. And so you can see just what they're thinking. And you can also look at the audience score, which, as I mentioned, it gives you a sense of just whether average viewers like you or me liked watching it. Okay. So what would you say is the difference between aggregated film reviews and film criticism? I think the what you lose a little bit with the aggregation is you lose um, the nuance that the film critic gives you describing what is good and what's bad about the movie so that you can make your own informed choice as a viewer as to whether or not you want to see it. Um, aggregation sites just kind of boil it down into a number as to what the overall general audience thinks. The other thing that you kind of lose with film criticism is you may have a film critic that just um, really kind of gets your taste you align really well with their perspective and they're almost an influencer in a way for you. And so you may rely on their reviews a little bit more heavily because they like the same types of movies that you like. You don't really get that, um, that level of detail with aggregation. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Ashley Rodriguez, who is a reporter that covers media and marketing for Quartz. And uh, Ashley, you recently wrote an article about how movie studios are complaining that Rotten Tomatoes, uh, it's it's ruining their box office numbers. So do you believe that's true? Well, if we look at the summer box office, and in the U.S., the summer box office we, is defined by a very particular period of time. It starts um, Friday, the first Friday in May, and it runs through Labor Day. And this year, we're down. We've been consistently down about 8%. Um, the last time I checked, it was a little bit over a week ago, and we were still down about 8% from last year in terms of the overall money that has been brought in from movies. So Interesting. So we are see, seeing a little bit of an impact, and the concern from some of these movie studios is that these movies have gotten bad reviews. There have been a lot of movies that just have not gotten good reviews and audiences just haven't shown up. There are other things they could be watching. There are movies on Netflix. You know, there's a a lot of great television on right now. They don't want to spend the money on a movie that's just not great. But the other concern is that, you know, maybe these movies just aren't great to begin with and aren't going to be drawing audiences. I mean, how excited can you really get over a fifth Pirates of the Caribbean movie? (laughs) It's not much different than the last four. Exactly. So why do these movie studios keep making these sequels that seemingly nobody wants to see? Are are they just very risk-averse? Why do they keep doing this to themselves? That's exactly it. They're relying on properties that are already established and already have an audience because there is so much other competition from things like TV and streaming services. There are a lot of other places for people to get their entertainment these days besides the cinema, and so they're relying on these already established properties. And now when we talk about these movies doing badly here in the U.S., they may lose money here, but they're making it up abroad. 
audiences right. in China in particular love some of these movies. Interesting. So, okay, I, I want to kind of change directions here a little bit. Getting back to critics on, on Rotten Tomatoes. So do you think it's fair that these critics, the, the, the same critics that maybe are a little more highbrow and have different tastes than somebody who's a little more lowbrow, do you, should they all be reviewing the same movies? So, for instance, uh, should a critic that analyzes a comedy be the same critic that comments on a historical drama? You know, that's a really good question because um, some of these films are just shouldn't be looked at in the same way. You know, a superhero movie is generally not going to be an Oscar contender in the same way that a big expensive drama might be. So someone who's used to that certain type of film shouldn't be judging the other. But generally, a lot of good film critics will weigh these things with a grain of salt, right? That's, again, why we um, prioritize some of the nuances in film criticism, because they will note that, you know, this is may not be an amazing film as we look at it as a film, but it's still a good movie. Yeah. So you, you do sort of get that level of it there. So it seems like one tactic that comes from movie studios is to just not screen their movie ahead of time for movie critics, maybe because they're confident that it's just going to get trashed by the critics and they're worried at what that negative score might do to their box office numbers. Do you think it is effective for movie studios to withhold their movie from being criticized before it's released? I think there will definitely be a lot of pushback if we actually see that happen because people are so used to seeing reviews, right? About a week before we start seeing all the reviews for a film and it does build up buzz for a movie. So if you're a movie that if you're a movie studio and you've got a a number of high profile projects coming out and they're getting good reviews, that is going to help you. But in the same, in the same vein, if they bomb, that's really just going to hurt your performance. So if you're in the business of making lowbrow comedies, maybe it doesn't make sense for you to to release or screen your films early for critics just so that they can, you know, hammer on it and then nobody goes to see it. Yeah. And it seems like there are certain movies that people are just going to go see regardless of how terrible the reviews are. I think of Suicide Squad. I think of Adam Sandler movies. People are just going to go see it no matter what the critics say. Exactly. Well, Netflix says um, Netflix is a great example because all of their recent Adam Sandler comedies have terrible reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. But Netflix says that they're some of the most watched movies on the site. So, you know, audiences will watch them if they're there. But the, the, the barrier that that cinemas have or that movie studios have is that they have to get people to pay specifically for this movie. You know, I may just watch it if it's on TV or if it's on Netflix, but to actually shell out eight or nine dollars is a different story. Right. So, you know, speaking of Netflix, they've recently adopted a new rating system, which I'm not a huge fan of. I was a much bigger fan of the star rating system that they had. Uh, Now it's just I think it's you it's recommended for you or it's not recommended for you. Do you Mm -hmm. think um, is there any way that Rotten Tomatoes could change their rating system to make it maybe more similar to Netflix? That would be interesting. So the way that Netflix does it, it's very personalized, right? They have all this data based on what you specifically like. So when you gave all those star ratings, um, and when they changed it, so they changed for, for just anyone who's listening and doesn't know, they changed from five star ratings to a thumbs up and thumbs down for each title. 
Now, those five-star ratings were always based on what they thought you as a viewer would like and not what the general population of Netflix viewers thought of that particular title. But there was some confusion among Netflix members where they thought it was a quality rating rather than a metric for personalization. So that's why they changed to the thumbs up and thumbs down, just to make that a little bit clearer. So for Rotten Tomatoes to have to do something like that, they would then have to get a sense of what you personally think of each of those films. So it might be a way for them to do it for, you know, people who use Rotten Tomatoes all the time, but I think it would be really challenging in terms of figuring out a score for, like, general viewers. Well, I I have to blame uh, now I have to blame Netflix for not being able to tell if I'm going to like a movie or not. So Netflix is just perpetuating the problem because now I'm just going to Rotten Tomatoes to find out if I'm going to like a certain Netflix show. Uh, anyway, exactly, yeah. how you would have to rely on Netflix what Netflix thinks you like versus what the general audience likes. Right. Ashley, let's do this. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, we're going to be talking about some of our favorite movies that critics hated and then maybe some movies that critics loved that we just don't get. That's up next on Screen Cleaning. This is Screen Cleaning with Jeff Simpson, and I'm speaking with Ashley Rodriguez, who is a reporter that covers media and marketing for Quartz, a digitally native news outlet for business people in the new global economy. And uh, prior to joining Quartz, she was a reporter for Advertising Age, covering retail and financial service marketers. And before that, she worked for digital creative and marketing agencies and was a freelance journalist. Ashley, thanks again for being on Screen Cleaning. Thanks for having me. So I'm really excited, and I, I don't want to offend you in, in case <laughs> I trash a movie that uh, that you love or I uh, love a movie that you don't love. But uh, I thought you and I could each share a movie, first of all, that had a really low Rotten Tomatoes critic score that you actually enjoy. And I'll go ahead and start. And this is actually a recent pick. Uh, critics were not kind to the film King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. And it actually... Yeah, it, sure were not. Yeah, and it totally bombed here in, in the States. Uh, but it, so it got a 28% rating from critics on Rotten Tomatoes. I actually enjoyed this film. But I should say that I'm a huge fan of Guy Ritchie, the director, and his style. He did the Sherlock Holmes films. He uh, recently did The Man from Uncle, which was another fun film. But I really enjoyed it. I enjoy his uh, style of storytelling. I thought it was about 30 minutes too long, and the ending was a little silly for me. But just a, a fun popcorn flick and i wasn't looking for shakespeare or even something that was true to the source material but i actually enjoyed this film you know i'm a guy Ritchie fan too but i have to say that i maybe did what movie studios worry about and then i saw all of the bad reviews and was like you know what i have a lot of movies to see this summer i'll just wait until this one comes out on dvd or is on amazon yeah Um, so i have not seen it yet um but i do plan to because I, i mean I liked all the other, you know, Sherlock was, it was a pretty good film for what it was. I, you know, I had a lot of fun. There's a lot of action. So, um, you know, there are, 
it's one of those movies where I feel like you can still enjoy it, even though it's not great. Oh, yeah. Okay, so what is your pick for the movie that had a really low Rotten Tomato score but that you loved? So it's funny that you should ask this because I was just talking about this with um, my fiancé the other day because it came on television. It's an older movie. It's called Smoke and Aces. I don't know if you ever saw it. It's this really dark comedy with Ray Liotta and Ryan Reynolds and Jeremy Piven. And then there's just a ton of gratuitous violence. It has about a 29% score on Rotten Tomatoes, but it's just one of those movies that's good fun. I wouldn't say it's my favorite movie, but I'll watch it when it comes on. Okay, yeah, I haven't seen that one. Now, also, it sometimes it happens that uh, movies have a very high critic score, and the audience score is very low. And uh, one example, and I this isn't my pick, but one example I thought of was Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull had a pretty good critics review, but audiences seemed to really hate it as time went by. I didn't mind it as much. I didn't think it was that different from any of the other Indiana Jones films as, as far as the plausibility of certain action sequences. That's not my pick, but that was just an example. Another, uh, another example, which is my pick, is a film directed by Robert Altman called A Prairie Home Companion. Got an 81% on Rotten Tomatoes. Pretty high critic score. And this, of course, is based on the Garrison Keillor Prairie Home Companion uh, radio shows that he used to put on. It's got got a great cast. Woody Harrelson, Meryl Streep, um, John C. Riley, Garrison Keillor, of course, is in it, and Tommy Lee Jones. This is one of those films that, and I should say that I haven't really listened to or watched any of the Prairie Home Companion radio shows, uh, but this film just really didn't do anything for me. thought it was kind of boring. It was kind of all over the place. And uh, yeah, I wasn't a huge fan. So this is an example of a film that got great scores from the critics, but not so much from, from me or audiences in general. My example is um, one that actually both critics and audiences liked, but I was not into, so I'm a little bit of the dissenter, I guess, in this one. Um, The Avengers, the first Avengers movie. I thought I was going to love it. I was really excited going into it. I remember I went to the midnight showing. It was directed by Joss Whedon, who I absolutely love. And I was really excited about it, but I was just, I think maybe my expectations were too high, and I was disappointed walking out of it. I just felt like... The plot was kind of um, shallow, and while I did appreciate what he did with the characterization element of it, I felt like, you know, Loki's master plan throughout it all was not very impressive for someone who's supposed to be the god of trickery. Um, wow. So I was pretty disappointed with that one. You are a dissenter. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting because that's a film that I remember seeing and, and very much enjoying, um, but I remember having a clear thought at the end of that movie wow, where are they going to go from here? Because it was just so huge in scale, so epic. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think I think you bring up a good point here, just in closing. Um, I, You and I seem to have totally different opinions on these Marvel movies, but that is yeah. just fine. And I think that's what a lot of people forget about when they go look at reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. All of these critics' tastes, all of the audience uh, tastes are going to be totally different. And one movie that you love is a movie that I may 
just hate. And that's okay. So there's, there's really something for everybody out there. And if you're, if you're willing to spend the time, do a little more research, you may stumble across a movie that, you know, one man's trash is another man's gold. I, I totally botched what that famous saying, but it really goes to show you there is something for everybody out there. And uh, Ashley Rodriguez, I just want to thank you again for, for being on screen cleaning. I had a great time with you and uh, keep up the good work and, and hopefully we can have you back on the show. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. When we return, Cole and I are going to continue this conversation of Rotten Tomato movies. And, uh, you know, there are just some movies that the audience and the critics just don't get it right. But doggone it, we still love those movies. That's up next on Screen Cleaning. There's good in them there hills. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. As we do each and every episode, we like to wrap things up by doing a little panning for good. And this is probably going to be the longest panning for good we've ever had. Kind of an extended panning for good as we continue this discussion of Rotten Tomato movies. Are the critics right? Are they wrong? And uh, what does that have to do with our own preferences? Right? Yeah, we did a little bit more digging and we found some movies that critics and audiences or one or the other are just kind of low on that we want to shine an extra spotlight on that we think are worth it. Right. Don't listen to that Rotten Tomatoes thing. <laughs> There's the, the most recent one that came out, Cole, is one that we were surprised or that I was surprised was not in the top 10. And maybe it was because Will Smith... Uh, and Tommy Lee Jones were not in it, or maybe it's because the critics were pretty harsh on it, was Men in Black International. And if you look at the audience score, I think it's just barely fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. And fresh means, again, as a reminder, it's above 60%. And it's one that I thought was pretty enjoyable. It's kind of mindless fun, and you may forget about it right after you've seen it. But in the moment, it is one that you'll have a good time watching, and certainly one that's worthy of seeing it on Redbox or on Amazon Prime. And, uh, you know, Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson are kind of extending this uh, partnership they started in the Thor movies. I think the studio hoped that it would have a closer Rotten Tomatoes score to that Thor Ragnarok that shows up on that top 100 list that we alluded to Uh, earlier that may or may not be accurate. You know, Critics were way too harsh on this. 22% on Rotten Tomatoes. Come on. It was way better than that. And another one that was fairly recent uh, is the reboot of the Tomb Raider franchise. This one is starring Academy, another Academy Award winner in the role of Lara Croft. And it was just simply called Tomb Raider. And it also had Walton Goggins in it, who is kind of a kind of a hammy actor. But um, this is another film that I I liked it, despite the critics and audience scores, both of which were rotten. And I really liked some of the action adventure scenes in this movie. Again, not the best movie ever made, but certainly better than the Angelina Jolie starring films. And despite the panning from the critics here in our panning <laughs> for good, it's going to get a sequel as well. That's right. And I was surprised because it did not make a ton of money. So, Cole, what are a couple of films that that you like despite what the audiences or the critics said about them? One of my most beloved movies of all time, again, maybe not my favorite, but in that latter category of I just kind of like it, 
is an Adam Sandler movie, surprisingly enough, called Click. No, Cole. 33% on Rotten Tomatoes. It does have a 60-ish for an audience score. So if you add the two together, it's almost up to 100%. I really enjoy this movie. And I, I... it's the movie that always surprises me when it makes me cry at the end because you go in <laughs> thinking it's just another Adam Sandler movie and then it does bring real heart to the message of the whole movie. It made me think though and I looked up Adam Sandler's whole filmography and Jeff, there's there's a lot of green splats as yeah. you go up and down his list. Even movies that you love from early in his career, Billy Madison, The Waterboy – these are movies that critics do not like. Let it be known, I wa- also do not like The Water Boy. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. But, but you uh, like Billy Madison. I remember that. Yeah. 40% on Rotten Tomatoes. All right. I, it sounds like I need to head over to Rotten Tomatoes and lower that audience score by leaving a review. But yeah, things like Grown Ups and Grown Ups 2, both in single digits right now. He was in Paul Blart Mall Cop. He was in just a lot of a lot of green splats for old Adam Sandler. But I like Click, no matter what. I do like Paul Blart, by the way, which I think has a pretty good audience score. That was one of those movies that was a good word of mouth. 32 critics, 43 audience. Really? It made a lot of money. Yeah. Oh, I, I made enough for a second. Okay. I've, had I known that, I would have suggested Paul Blart. Any others, uh, Cole? I will always love Space Jam. I don't oh, care that Michael Jordan can't particularly act. I don't care that the Looney Tunes kind of get their first chance at being in live action. And, and it doesn't – I don't think it goes quite as well maybe as when they get to be Looney Tunes back in action later on. But I think Space Jam is still a very fun movie that the critics put at 43%. You know, and it must have done something right because they're rebooting that one as well. Right, Cole? With LeBron James. Yeah. Uh, A couple more suggestions that I might make. Both of these movies were movies that have rotten critic scores and rotten audience scores. And this first one I want to talk about is a film called Reign of Fire. This is a film starring Matthew McConaughey and Christian Bale. And I think this movie has a lot going for it. There are some really cool action scenes in it, some really cool uh, creative scenes that they that they have in here. And I don't know, I, I think had this movie come out uh, a little closer to Game of Thrones, maybe people would have been a little friendlier to it because there is a lot of dragon action in this film, a lot of fire breathing, a really clever scene in it in which – so the, obviously this is kind of like a post-apocalyptic you know, and uh, alternate universe type thing where people can remember – Things from the good old days that they pass along after all of these years. And so it's so fun to watch this little stage play of these people who had never seen Star Wars, but it was passed along through these generations and they're reenacting scenes from Star Wars and these kids are just sitting and watching in awe. That was kind of fun. Another film that is very near and dear to my childhood, speaking of Click and uh, Sean Astin, this was a film starring Sean Astin in the early 90s, 
also starring Brendan Fraser. And the film, really, that put both Brendan Fraser and Polly Shore on the map. Oh, boy. Encino Man, yeah. which has a very dreadful critic score on Rotten Tomatoes. And the audience score isn't much better. But when it was out, it did quite well. It was made for $7 million, and it made over $40 million, which in the 90s is kind of a That's big deal. Good. And very prominently featured in the movie and in the trailer was Right Said Fred's I'm Too Sexy, another film or another song that has been prominently featured in countless films. Anytime they needed like the we need, we need a uh, an ace up our sleeve montage scene. Let's do a right said Fred scene. I know that Grumpy Old Men also has this in a, in a montage. But uh, yeah, loved it as a kid. I haven't revisited it uh, recently, so it may not hold up as well. But man, when I was a kid, there was nothing better than Encino Man. Space Jam, I admit, I probably like more because of nostalgia. And there's others that the critics are down on because they're so bad that they're good. We rank them as that now. (laughs) But, you know, in the end, they were kind of bad. I want to finally focus on a couple movies that came out when I was an adult and I genuinely enjoy, not just to laugh at, but... I think these are good movies, and they are Speed Racer and Cowboys and Aliens. And I know that they kind of share some similarities in that they're a little goofy, right? I I get get it why the stuffy critics in their suits and their thumbs up and thumbs down frowned upon these movies because from their concept, they're just a little goofy. But they both commit so hard into what they planned on doing. You want to see James Bond with a cowboy hat and an old West accent fighting aliens alongside Harrison Ford? We're going to give it to you. You want to see a hyper-stylized, colorful array of an interpretation of a 60s cartoon? We're going to give it to you. And I do think at the end of the day, this intention matters. They succeeded at what they set out to do. The ties into the Fast and the Furious movies, right? We just got another one of those. And as that franchise has got on, the reviews have gotten better. Not because the movies have gotten better per se, I enjoy all of them, but because the reviewers have kind of stepped back and said, hey, they're big, dumb action movies that people enjoy, and they are succeeding at that. You know, grade them and review them on their own terms, not bringing the Oscar bait biopic scale to an action or a comedy party. Not to give them an excuse, but simply to admit that there are different kinds of movies out there that do different things and and give different feelings to different people. That's what we do here each and every week on Screen Cleaning. We try to fill your lives with joy by giving you some options for entertainment that you can enjoy as a family. And uh, who cares what those critics say, right? We'll be back here next week at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on BYU Radio for Screen Cleaning. Until then.